thank, thank you very much for that, uh, that very generous introduction. Um, I, will, I will be speaking in English. Um, I realized uh, two days ago I, I Googled how long is a 45-minute talk, uh, and I realized I had to cut about 3,000 words because, like many Americans, I say too much. So if you're following along in Italian, I will be skipping spots. But if you're following along in Italian, you probably won't be knowing that I'll be skipping spots. Um, but uh, so the, the way I envision this paper, um, or I might envision this paper in this, when, the, uh, when it gets published as part of a, a conference proceedings, um, it may be the chapter that um, someone who is unfamiliar with uh, juridical realism might pick up and try to understand how does this fit in uh, in the way that I think about law and the way I've, I've been taught law, especially in um, English-speaking English -speaking countries uh, where the likes of Hervada and Ville are, are, are unknown. Um, so I will, um, I, um, uh, I, I'll, I'll proceed along, uh, along those lines and I'll try not to be too long. I'm, I hope to be the limon sorbet of this, uh, of, 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 at the end of this meal, uh, not, nothing too heavy. Um, so how can the Thomistic conception of use inform contemporary legal philosophy? Uh, the instinct of the jurisprudent scholar is to begin at the most general and abstract level of analysis. Uh, but I've decided to take an, a different approach, uh, beginning at the very particular, a simple but canonical case in American tort law, and then telescoping outward to inquiries concerning the nature of tort law, the nature of private law as a whole, and then broader methodological considerations about law in general. Along the way, I will identify how the Thomistic understanding of use can clarify, illuminate, or challenge contemporary arguments about these subjects. Extended discussions of American tort law in theory may seem out of place at a conference pursuing foundational universal questions. But at the same time, starting small and working outward also seems fitting for this topic. The basic insight of the juridical realists is that there are things in the world to which a person is entitled and that others are indebted to respect, and that the, the core of justice is the simple act of rendering a person his due. The most abstract view of the juridical character of natural law, then, must account for and indeed orient itself around that humble transaction. As a threshold matter, I'm assuming for purposes of this paper, the soundness of juridical, of juridical realist interpretation of Aquinas' conception of use as offered by Ville and Hervada and synthesized recently by Father, uh, Father Popovich. My scholarly work thus far has focused primarily on jurisprudential method and the relationship between human positive law and natural law. While my scholarship has presumed the truth of the classical Thomistic categories and understanding of natural law, it has until very recently worked on questions that did not require studying and taking aside on internal debates about how to properly understand the tradition within those contours. And for many purposes, I think that's, that's been good enough. Um, it's not clear to me that there is at least some level of generality. There's much daylight between someone like Hittinger and Finnis on the relationship between positive law and natural law, or the proper methods for understanding human practices. And as, as I'll explain below, uh, Thomistic juridical realism is in many respects complementary with natural law arguments and general jurisprudence premised on approaches that are silent on or even disagree with some aspects of a distinct juridical uh, aspect of natural law. On the other hand, um, I for a while have had a nagging worry that methodological debates between natural lawyers and positivists and general jurisprudence persist for more basic questions such as what is natural law like? Uh, it is one thing to establish, and I think correctly, that a social practice like law can only be understood in light of its orienting moral purposes. 
It is another thing to bracket indefinitely the particular content and character of those orienting moral purposes. And this goes beyond the trivial observation that a non-positivist like Ronald Dworkin has a different vision of the good uh, than Aquinas. Um, as the tentative discussions below will indicate, commitments about the character and form of natural law can affect methodological questions in general jurisprudence that appear to prescind from substantive judgments about the content of particular legal norms. Uh, yet, because I'm an academic lawyer who is, um, for now, a mere spectator in debates about the proper interpretation of Aquinas' teachings on justice and law, I do not feel yet competent to come lay down a firm marker in favor of side here uh, in this paper. Indeed, as a person who is not introduced to Hervada until recent years, I am a novice this way of thinking about law in general. I'm confident that my paper here and my thinking later will be uh, greatly improved uh, by, by my discussions with you. Um, so let's start at the basic level. Nearly every American tort student has encountered the case of Paul's graph versus Long Island Railroad. Its facts are striking and the dueling opinions cut to the heart of questions about the nature of tort law in the United States. Helen Palsgraf, a ticketed railroad passenger, waits for her train on a platform. A man carrying a package runs to catch his train. He leaps onto the moving train while, the, while a railroad employee holds the door open for him. The railroad employee push it, uh, on the train helps pull the man into the car uh, while another railroad employee worker pushes him to get onto the car. Um, in, in the course of doing so, the package drops. Unbeknownst to everyone, except for the, 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 the would-be passenger, the, pa the package contained explosives. Uh, large explosion ensues. A heavy metal scale falls on poor Mrs. Paul's graph, who is standing 30 feet away uh, from, uh, from, uh, uh, from, from the accident. The train leaves the station, taking the package hold holding passenger into the midst of history, where he remains unknown to this day. Paul's graph sues the railroad for her injuries, thus setting the stage for the most memorable exchange in American tort law. By the way, the newspaper accounts of this case, um, people suspected it was an Italian anarchist holding, uh, hold, uh, but it turns out the explosions were uh, green, white, and red fireworks for, uh, and um, so uh, it's a little local color here. Um, so overturning a jury verdict in Mrs. Paul's graph's favor, the majority opinion by Chief Justice Benjamin Cardozo rules that as a matter of law, Paul's graph cannot recover from the railroad. Cardozo explained that a tort plaintiff must show a commission of a wrong, which violates a right. Here, the right against inter interference with her bodily security. But it's not enough for a negligence plaintiff to simply show a wrong or wrongful conduct that happens to result in her injury alone. Negligence, rather, is a term of relation. And the plaintiff must show a wrong in relation to her. Even if it were careless for the railroad employees to help a man leap onto a departing train, they were not careless with respect to Paul's graph because no reasonable person in the railroad employee's position could have known that he, that he was putting her in danger. Paul's graph loses because a plaintiff, as Cardozo says, sues in her own right for a wrong personal to her and not as a vicarious beneficiary of a breach of a duty to another. Judge Andrews famously dissented. Posing a competing approach to Cardozo's, he said, where there is an, when, there is an un, when an act unreasonably threatens the safety of others, the doer is liable for all its proximate consequences. Full stop. Everyone owes a duty to the world at large in refraining from those acts that may unreasonably threaten the safety of others, he said. Every negligence plaintiff must show that the defendant has breached a duty of care, but, as he said, this is not a duty to a particular individual uh, because, as to him, harm might be expected. 
we can understand these competing conceptions of negligence duties through a grammatical analogy. Cardozo's relational understanding of duty resembles a transitive verb, which must specify someone or something to be acted upon. A strikes B, rather than striking abstractly. Andrew's non-relational understanding of duty resembles an intransitive verb, which does not require an object. A litters is a complete statement in a way that A strikes is not. For Andrews, it is enough to be careless, full stop. The question of whether negligence duties are relational continues to divide, divide commentator and goes to the heart of contemporary debates about the nature of tort law. The relational understanding of negligence duties is rejected by scholars who view tort law as a tool for encouraging efficient deterrence or for serving as a compensation regime that spreads the costs of accidents. Philosophers of tort law, especially those since writing since the 1990s, have pushed back. They say this approach ignores American tort law, which generally requires a plaintiff to show more than a duty to the world. They further contend that Cardozo's relational understanding better coheres with the conceptual structure of like negligence liability, which focuses on wrongs between parties. Now, stepping back from last century's debates about tort duties, it's worth asking how we can understand negligence duties in the Paul's graph case from the perspective of Thomistic juridical realism. First, we would say Paul's grasp bodily integrity is a right amenable to a juridical relationship. It is attributable to her and her only her. She has title to that bodily integrity, moreover, as a matter of natural right in the first instance, and as a matter of positive law specification through the case law of the state of New York. This attributed thing, bodily integrity, is Paul's grasp jus. This right, moreover, is in relation of debt to others. Others, like the Long Island Railroad and passengers carrying explosives, have the capability to interfere with a thing apportioned to her, and they owe her the obligation not to do so. A tort claim in this respect is a demand from the plaintiff that the defendant return her sum to him, usually in the form of damages as an imperfect substitute. This understanding, of course, coheres with Cardozo's finding of no liability in Paul's graph. After all, the tradition speaks of the relational aspects or other directness that is essential uh, for the virtue of justice. And Cardozo explains that the wrong of negligence is also a term of relation. Duties that are, so to speak, intransitive and not directed, uh, that, that are intransitive and not directed to others in particular may be part of morality as a whole, but do not fall into the juridical domain. It is generally good as a matter of virtuous life and one's internal dispositions to be a careful person. But the specifically juridical moment of morality requires a relationship of justice with respect to a particular person's use. The railroad was in a relationship of justice with respect to Paul's graph, its passenger. It needed to respect her bodily integrity and its conduct and its maintenance of the station to honor her, her ticket she purchased, to make reasonable efforts to deliver services, et cetera. Um, but, they, but, but they did not fail any of those obligations. She, even though she suffered a loss, the loss is not a result of the failure of those obligations. A person who wants to reach Andrew's result while staying within the juridical realist framework could try to broaden the understanding of the relationship of justice but here the juridical category strain. Um, as evidenced by Andrew's nebulous description of this as a duty to the world. Although such a duty has echoes of legal justice, duties owed to the political community as a whole, the litigating party here is not the state seeking to impose a fine or a criminal penalty. Wrong claimant, wrong use. And while as a matter of distributive justice, we might think it unfair that Paul's graph bears the cost of accidents alone, especially if there's insufficient provision of healthcare in the polity, uh, she is bringing a claim against a private party, not someone with direct responsibility for the just allocation of resources. So attention to tr tr traditional juridical categories illuminates and provides the broader, con uh, 
context of the debate concerning tort duties in uh, tort law, in America at least. Losing the, gra the grasp on those traditional categories also fuels and, dis and distorts the controversy. The common law treatises and case law Cardozo relies on uh, presume or at least echo um, the categories and ontology of juridical realism, but Cardozo himself rejected the classical natural law tradition. For the more thoroughly modern Andrews and his disciples, these categories and their metaphysical presuppositions are relics to be overcome. Juridical realism, by contrast, makes sense of Cardozo's insight about tort duties and the structure of negligence while identifying the problems of slotting legitimate concerns about legal and distributive justice into this adjudicative frame. So that's tort law. Let's expand a little bit further out to understanding private law more generally. Arguments about how to understand duties and negligence can easily slide into ones about how to understand tort duties more generally, tort law as a whole, or private law in general. Relationality in tort is central to a larger scholarly project of showing how tort law is best understood as an institution providing civil redress for private wrongs, as opposed to, as many in the United States think, a regulatory system for deterrence and compensation. Um, and, and in this work, tort law is part of a larger project of scholars who, uh, who, who resist the notion that private law is simply public law in disguise. But what does it mean to offer a good theory about tort law in particular or private law in general? One approach popular in uh, much of the American Legal Academy is primarily externalist in orientation. From the perspective of the citizen, one is to understand private law from the perspective of the person who simply seeks to avoid legal sanctions as a defendant or to collect bounties as a plaintiff. From the perspective of the official or policymaker, one should understand and shape private law in light of external public purposes. From the perspective of the theorist, one should study private law like a certain kind of social scientist, focusing on and predicting what its actors will do rather than what they believe or what the doctrine on the surface says. Some common law philosophers of private law have pushed back on this externalist approach. These scholar, scholars offer com compelling arguments that such approaches cannot make sense of the structure of the doctrine that we have. This mismatch between th uh, theoretical desideratum and doctrinal reality is a problem, however, only if the proper met methodological perspective is to an important degree internal to the practice itself. But why care about the internal point of view of the practitioners? One important justification we see in the literature, especially from professors uh, Goldberg and Zapersky, draws on H.L.A. Hart's legal positivism. Hart, in his rejection of Austin's command theory of law, explain that external perspectives miss the important differences, a difference between our understanding of being obliged, you're obliged to give the mugger your wallet, uh, and obligation, you have an obligation to pay your taxes. In the same way, an externalist explanation of tort law can account for the way participants in the practice understand it as normative outside of the mere fact of sanctions. That makes for a bad explanation in the same way crude behavioralism in the social sciences fails to capture the entirety of, of, of the human phenomena studies. Following Hart, however, um, this, 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 this particular internal perspective does not commit one to a natural law theory of tort or private law. Just as Hart's criterion for, for identifying which social rules count as law as a matter of social fact and practice rather than critical morality, such, the such theorists seek to capture in tort law what is distinctive about the legal oughtness as opposed to the moral oughtness of tort. Although there is an overlap between, our between tort law and our moral obligations, it is not perfect and there is no necessary connection between a given tort duty and moral norms. 
It's, it's a, it is a contingent fact that we regard tort law as an institution where private individuals can seek redress or correction of certain private relational wrongs that we happen to denominate as torts. Such internalist approaches, um, and I just discussed a couple other length in the paper, uh, share a similar feature, and I would argue it's a flawed feature. They're insufficiently internalist because they fail to see how the internal point of view implies recognizing that law aims to supply real or genuinely normative moral reasons for action and succeeds only to the extent that it meets the, uh, that aim. We care about private law because we care about the rights and obligations it recognizes and human interests it protects. And any sufficiently internal account of the practice has to recognize that point. A hearty description of legal practices can't distinguish private law from um, the Grand Harbor Florida Bocce League. That's the retirement community my parents play bocce. Um, it cannot offer reasons why the practice is one way ra rather than another, why we should work to sustain it, or why, absent coercive threats, we should comply with its norms. A more successful and complete method regard private law in its central or focal case as being an ensemble of norms that are good for members of the political community to follow. From this perspective, private law is premised on the notion that persons have interests of objective moral value that others should respect as a matter of justice. Not everyone will have this point of view. Some will view the practice from the outside. Others will view it from the inside but have deeply mistaken ideas about what justice requires. The internal point of view here, however, is that of the practically reasonable person. This approach, which recognizes that explaining human practices involves understanding the ultimate point, is sound social theorizing. But it's also quite formal. What kind of practically reasonable person and with respect to which norms and which institutional forms? Juridical realism can help specify those generalities. First, which norms are involved? As the discussion of Paul's graph indicates, juridical realism can offer both the form and the talos of private law. It offers the architecture for a system of commutative justice that explains why private law has the adjudicative relational structure that it has. It's realism about natural rights, and we'll get into the objective versus subjective debate, um, about natural rights explains why a certain set of rights, duties, and obligations, and not others, should be part of private law. It explains that part of the topography of the natural law has a juridical character, and a subpart of that juridical domain concerns relations between parties concerning interpersonal justice. Against the Hardian positus, it asserts that the features that they are describing are neither wholly contingent nor at its base untethered to a morally realist understanding of practical reasoning. Theorists like Goldberg and Sapersky, who are attracted to Hardian positivism and, Amer and American pragmatism, will be allergic to juridical realism's thicker metaphysics. But this framework can also account for such theorists' observations that private law doctrine often does, and sometimes should, not mere morality in its entirety. Juridical realism's differentiation of the moral order can explain why some pockets of private law can look troublesome for one perspective, but nevertheless seem reasonable and coherent if we understand the practice as focusing on one person demanding another render him his due. Example here would be the law of damages. The law of damages in the United States says just compensation for the loss. Um, now, from some perspectives, that can be problematic. Um, it is cheaper for me to negligently injure a homeless drifter than it is for me to injure a professional athlete, right? Um, and, but never, and so you can imagine a system where we say, um, we, uh, where we make a, a progressive adjustment of damages to combat inequality. Um, but that's not what the law does. Um, and one, uh, the actual law resists such reforms. And one justification for doing so is understanding that tort law is an institution concerning interpersonal relationships of debt, 
with respect to a person's use. Some sums are more valuable monetarily than others, and equality in that respect requires the defendant pay his debt. Put another way, to the extent these disparities are a product of distributive injustice, it is not the obligation of the tort defendant to, to play a disproportionate role in rendering the impecunious plaintiff the, uh, the use that the political community owes him. Finally, and by way of transition to the next section, or the final section of the paper, uh, juridical realism sharpens the natural lawyer's critique of functionalist theories and morally disengaged internal theories. In much of the literature, the natural lawyer's more moralized rendition of the internal point of view, again, seems more formal than substantive. As a matter of theory construction, the argument goes, the internal point of view has to center the practically reasonable person, the citizen who looks to the law for practical guidance, the lawmaker who develops law with an eye towards our moral, morally true rights, duties, and obligations, and the jurist who renders what is uh, truly due to a person. But the morally true or practically reasonable qualifiers serve as unspecified variables, raising questions about what kinds of moral theories, what kinds of pictures of moral reality can be slotted into that methodological equation. For natural lawyers unsatisfied with mere description or formalism in private law theory, juridical realism helps move beyond critique and toward a, toward a substantive particular vision of the, of the morality that they insist good theorizing requires. Which brings us to the final broader level, understanding human law. Um, this brings us to the philosophy of legal philosophy, which asks not, not only what is law, but what would a good answer to this question look like? Uh, this is the site in general jurisprudence where natural lawyers and legal positivists tend to fight. Um, such questions also bring jurisprudence into broader arguments about the proper way to theorize and understand social practices. Um, after sketching se uh, central disagreements on this, on, uh, on this question in contemporary Anglophone jurisprudence, I'll offer some observations about how Thomistic jur juridical realism can inform and perhaps transform these arguments. I've already mentioned the internal turn much of Anglophone legal theory has taken since the work of Hart. Hart's critique Austin's theory that law is a mere command of the sovereign, habitually obeyed by others out of fear of sanctions. Again, obligations obliged, et cetera. Um, so even more importantly, Hart argued Austin's external approach neglects how we understand law as a normative reason-giving practice, not just an arrangement of carrots and sticks applied to us by the sovereign. To understand a human practice like law, you have to understand the internal attitude of the participants. We view law as giving us reasons for action and view the flouting of the law as something that opens one to criticism or at least requires an explanation by the mere fact that you can get away with it. So far, the classical natural lawyer and can, uh, can find much to agree with. Um, purely external accounts that seek law-like patterns of cause and effect, while more, perhaps more amenable to hard sciences, cannot fully explain the practices of persons who reflect and act on reasons. But Hart insists that keying the concept of law to a citizen's internal understanding of law as normative does not mean that we find morality or natural law at the heart of our concept of law. We recognize the difference between being obliged to pay the mugger and the obligation to pay taxes according, according to law. But that doesn't mean the latter obligation is moral, Hart says. It's possible to view the attitude towards law as habitual or customary in the way that men take their hats off in church or Americans don't wear white clothing after Labor Day. The same goes for, Hart would say, the rule of recognition. It's not the, mas it's not the master rule of the system because it passes some moral criterion, but rather becomes it just happens to be our practice. All that succeeds is success. Um, now, John Finnis, in his first chapter of Natural Law and Natural Rights and in subsequent essays, has offered powerful objections to this argument, which have garnered dissent outside the Thomistic tradition. 
This tack will be familiar from the discussion of private law theory above. The problem with Hart and his fellows' approaches to internalist explanations of, is their insistence that one can neutrally describe human practices without evaluation. As philosophical naturalists and positivists more sympathetic to Austin than Hart will quickly point out, human law is not a natural kind like gold or water for which you can find an essence that is true in all places and all times by mere factual description. Rather, there's a welter of institutions, activities, and norms and attitudes out there in the world that bear the appellation of law and legal practices and norms and institutions share features of, uh, of, things that, uh, of other things that we do not call law. If jurisprudence aspires to be more than a, a conjunction of lexicography with local history, we need a principle of selection to identify central or focal instances of the concept of law. That principle of selection will key to the purposes of why people pursue the practice in the first place. But because many different people will pursue or participate in the practice for many different reasons, we need a principle of selection to identify central or focal, uh, a central or focal case of the purposes for doing so. Otherwise, we're back to a fruitless compilation of attitudes that people happen to have. As Finnis argues, in accordance with humanistic philosophers of social sciences like McIntyre and Charles Taylor, um, that principle of selection will ultimately be moral. One must understand law from the internal perspective of a practically reasonable person who sees law in its central case as securing, uh, as securing justice, natural rights, and advancing the common good. Now, not all law or even most of it will do that, but that's the central case. In short, the dividing line between natural lawyers and legal positivists at the level of method is whether the law as a whole can only be understood in a moral-based theological analysis. And the natural lawyer says yes. Now, non-positivists can agree that moral-based theological analysis is necessary for understanding law, but that opens up a lot of questions about the moral landscape that fills in the central case of law. Here, juridical realism contributes new points of emphasis and perhaps some, correct, some correction to the general approaches of natural lawyers who do not focus on the juridical domain. At the same time, this latter group of theorists who work often, whose work you know, often does not focus on juridical dimensions um, can offer crucial and complementary points of emphasis uh, regarding law's positivity. The central contribution of juridical realists here is explaining how the, mor the moral domain is differentiated. Pravada identifies three aspects of moral reality and their accompanying sciences. The first concerns the person's conduct in relation to himself and to God and pertains to the moral science or moral philosophy, which studies all acts. The second, the juridical domain in science pertains to the acts of the virtue of justice. It focuses not on the virtue of just, justice in its entirety, but rather its external work. Third, the political dimension in science concerns human conduct from the perspective of the common good of society and, and attends to the perspective of the social order. The juridical dimension can help fill out the, pic uh, the picture of the natural lawyer's account of the relationship between law and morality. In particular, the juridical realist insists uh, um, in particular, the juridical realist insists uh, that in an important way, morality here already has the character of law or juridicity. Rather than viewing all implementation of natural law in this domain as a two-step process where the jurist brings down morality to the sublunary world of human law, there are aspects of the natural moral law that come pre-shaped in juridical form or already extend into human law rightly understood. This is because, as Hervada argues, Juridical natural law contains natural rights which have not only a natural title, but also a natural measure that provide direct rules of action for persons and some rules of commutative and distributive and legal justice. The central case of law will regard these as pre-existing legal norms that jurists can recognize, declare, and apply directly 
Though, of course, specification by positive law will also play a crucial role. This will affect not only the content of administering justice, but also, as our discussion of private law above indicates, its forms and its approaches to deciding whom has standing to bring which kind of claim of injustice. Hervada's tripartite distinction of moral reality also highlights how the juridical domain relies on those other dimensions, even as our understanding of justice is incomplete without it. The natural political law refers to the moral imperative com of completing our social nature by forming political communities through law that provides re provide reasonably just schemes of cooperation, <laughs> coordination, and the protection of, uh, of natural rights or, secure, or securing just relations. These reasoned choices will include decisions about governmental forms and structures, as well as offices with their attendant duties, obligations, powers, and limits of authority. The relationship between the juridical natural law and political natural law is important and complex. Political institutions exist in part to ensure the recognition, protection, and enforcement of justice and natural rights. The works of juridical realists like Hervada uh, also give the impression that the range of determination in the political domain can be broader than the juridical domain, which demands the respect of basic rights to which all persons have natural title. At the same time, it would be a mistake to view the juridical domain as the first among equals, and I don't take juridical realists to be making that claim. The mere fact that someone has committed objective injustice in the juridical domain does not necessarily give me or anybody else authority to render the victim his, his due. An important part of implementing the political natural law is the creation and delineation, delineation of offices, which can entail limits of jurisdiction or competence to render legally enforceable judgment. Furthermore, juridical justice does not speak to social coordination and cooperation, which is also required for the protection uh, of rights and securing, uh, securing just relations and advancing the common good. Part of the coordination problem law solves, moreover, is reasonable disagreement about the precise contours of, of our, our natural juridical rights and duties and the practical choices required to implement them. For that, we need reasonably authoritative choices. And for those reasonable choices to do their necessary work, they must be salient to participants and presumptively authoritative. In that respect, some of the scholarship of natural lawyers sometimes deemed a little too friendly to positivism is best understood as emphasizing the need to complete the necessary but underdetermined under task of implementing the political natural law in reasonable fashion. The differentiation of the moral life the Thomistic juridical realists offer us as, um, as well as its complex interrelationships and interdependencies also sheds light on the shortcomings and imprecisions of other non-positivist approaches to law. I'm thinking here of Professor Mark Greenberg's recent and influential moral, so-called moral impact theory of law. This theory holds that legal obligations are those genuine obligations that obtain in virtue of the actions of legal institutions. For example, he argues we have obligations to say drive on the right side of the road, um, not simply because the law said so, as a reasonably just determination of the natural law's requirement of safe, safety and coordination, but because the fact that people will treat the official action as salient creates the obligation to follow suit, lest I cause accidents. Greenberg insists that we must distinguish between what morality requires ex ante before the actions of legal officials and what, require, what it requires ex post, that is taking into account all the relevant circumstances and past actions, in particular the actions of legal institutions that affect our good reasons for action. Greenberg describes his approach as part of a family of dependence theories, which hold that we ordinarily regard as legal rights and obligations are best understood as a certain subset of moral rights and obligations affected by the actions of legal and political institutions. Other adherents to dependence theories are Scott Hershowitz at Michigan and the late Ronald Dworkin in his later work. 
there is some superficial resemblance between dependence theories and Thomistic juridical realism. A natural rights thinker in this vein could find himself agreeing with Dworkin's statement that legal rights are those moral rights that people are entitled to enforce on demand without further legislative intervention in adjudicative institutions that direct the executive power. One begins to suspect ambiguity, however, upon reading Dworkin's formulation of his one, what he calls his one system picture, where we now treat, as, we treat law as a part of political morality. So much depends on what we mean by law and what we mean by political morality. If we, if we mean that a portion or dimension of the natural law has a particular juridical form, the juridical realist would have no objection. But it's almost certainly not what Dworkin means. The problem that the classical Thomas will identify here recalls earlier worries about imprecise accounts of the moral terrain. There is a sense in which law is a subcategory of morality, but the juridical realist could assert, by contrast, that there is also an important sense in which a domain of morality is legal in the juridical sense of the term. Greenberg's moral impact theory instead treats morality as an undifferentiated, all things considered domain, where law provides reasons for action only incidentally as a downstream product of activities by officials. Law on this understanding is not a ratio juris that pre-exists in the mind of the lawmaker as an expression or ratio of the particular just work which the reason determines and which is a kind of rule of prudence. Rather, it claims to be more thoroughly moralized than traditional natural law theory and that it gives no constitutive role to the positing of legal norms at all. Greenberg understands his legal theory to be offering a thesis about what metaphysically determines the content of law. The juridical realist works from a very different metaphysical picture. This inattention to the juridical domain of morality and its blending of considerations of natural political law and more general moral philosophy leads to problems in the theory. For example, as Professor Steve Schaus notes, uh, Greensburg theory is incapable of explaining the common distinction between legal rights uh, and uh, legal rights and obligations and moral rights and obligations. If legal obligations are simply genuine obligations that pertain in virtue of the action of legal institutions, we could describe as a legal obligation my duty to leave home for work earlier because a change in speed limits lengthens my commute. And paradoxically, to the extent we have obligations to combat injustice, the moral impact of invidious laws on Greenberg's account could create legal obligations to campaign for a new government or even revolt. Greenberg recognizes this difficulty but admits he's not resolved it. This odd result, the Thomistic juridical realist could explain, is a product of modern jurisprudence's flattening of the legal landscape. Take the speed limit change. Rather than generic impact, the change of the speed limit creates A, juridical obligations of legal justice to not speed, B, a specification of pre-existing juridical obligations of commutative justice to take care not to injure those around you, and C, incidentally affects pre-existing juridical obligations of commutative justice and that one must change one's conduct to meet his agreed upon work obligations. This moral impact, moreover, would not be enforceable absent specifications of political natural law that give courts jurisdiction to enforce these obligations of legal and commutative justice. It would be a commutative injustice for A not to leave on time to pick up B at the airport in light of the new speed limit, but absent further facts, there'd be no liability. Take in turn the moral impact of invidious, invidious positive law. Greenberg argues that it would be paradoxical to regard wicked laws as creating legal obligations, uh, to, even if only to change them. He responds that we should not regard such paradoxical, we, we should not regard such paradox, paradoxical obligations as legal because a legal institution by its nature is supposed to improve the moral situation. 
This is true enough and echoes the classical natural lawyer's understanding of law's central case. The juridical realist with his more careful carving up of the, of the moral domain can offer a more satisfying explanation. Invidious laws do not create obligations or impact because absent prudential concerns about scandal, they are ineffective in the face of, uh, of, of natural rights and duties of commutative and distributive justice. The beneficiary of an, of an invidious law cannot claim it as his sum. The jurist cannot render it to him as his jus. As and others are not in a relationship of debt with respect to it. The obligation to change such laws as part of our duty to seek justice in the juridical domain, reasonably implement the political natural law, and to not violate our obligations to God and ourselves by becoming complicit in systemic injustice. The point here is not to pick on Mark Greenberg uh, or the moral impact theory, uh, which, is admirably, which admirably is willing to connect positive law and morality. Rather, to identify how Thomistic juridical realism and the classical framework's more careful differentiation of the natural law's dimensions can properly situate such theories, partial truths, and correct their infelicities. So to close up, uh, what is the relationship between law and morality? The perennial question. Any sophisticated response to that central question of general jurisprudence will presume or inquire about the precise senses of those terms. Thomistic juridical realism offers a rich and textured set of answers to that question. And while the metaphysical assumptions behind that approach might jar some contemporary sensibilities, especially in Anglo-American jurisprudential circles, um, they also cohere with and perhaps complete and correct familiar legal practices and theories. So to wind up, consider again a simple moment whose legal moral, moral reality entails a huge invisible ontology. To slightly modify the facts of Paul's graph, imagine a package drops off the train leading to an explosion that injures both Mrs. Paul's graph and the man, call him Smith, who is standing a foot away from the, from the leaping, jostled passenger. <coughs> Paul's graph and Smith sue the railroad. The court holds that the railroad, by carelessly jostling the passenger, breached duty to Smith because it was foreseeable that something could fall on him. The court also holds that the railroad breached no duty to Mrs. Paul's graph because they were not careless with respect to her. She cannot recover, but perhaps Smith can. How can we make sense of this event and its implications? The juridical realist explains that the railroad breached a duty of community, commutative justice owed to Smith by virtue of him being a natural title holder of the integrity of his person. Mrs. Paul's graph also holds the same natural title and the railroad owes her a debt to not interfere with it, but she cannot explain how the railroad's action, which is an injustice to Smith and perhaps a wrong in general, in a general moral sense, was an injustice to her. Smith is entitled to compensation, though Paul's graph is not, because the legal system's reasonable implementation of the natural political law provides a forum in which people can, among other things, bring actions of repair for commutative injustices. These institutions, in an important respect, confer on officials jurisdiction to enforce, enforce pre-existing, to enforce the pre-existing juridical dimension of the natural law, finding or declaring the law of tort rather than adopting or translating abstract moral norms into positive legal doctrine. At the same time, of course, Reasonable specification through the positive law will shape the contours of those natural juridical rights and person's ability to claim them. The institutional structure of private law, its relational understanding of rights, and the range of moral considerations it will treat as decisive, characteristically will center on commutative justice, though it is a mistake to treat those arrangements as forms serving their own sake, as opposed to its telos of realizing one aspect of juridical justice, and therefore one imp important aspect of the natural law as a whole. If it is good to understand the institutions uh, uh, of private law in this way, 
We do so not as a matter of sheer description of external events or patterns of behavior, nor do we do so as a matter of sheer description of internal attitudes of obligation people happen to have about the practice. Rather, surveying that flux of activity and attitudes, we focus on and treat as central and then orient the practice toward morally good reasons people would have for engaging in this practice in this institution. And as for private law, so for human law as a whole, which itself is differentiated by the forms of juridical justice. The juridical dimension of the natural law interconnects with and is rendered effective by reasonable implementation of the natural political law. In the central case, this natural law, be it juridical or political, is a pre-existing ratio of right ordering the mind of the lawmaker, be it divine or human, not as Greenberg would suggest, the incidental downstream moral effects of the activity of officials and political institutions. With that, I will give you all a break.